story about John Wesley, one of our early, uh, in the United States, one of our early godly men under the Great Awakening time. And he would get up at four o'clock in the morning and he would read scripture for five hours every morning and he did until the time he died. And that's how he started his day. Now what was exceedingly exciting about that is that John Wesley would read the scriptures in Latin, in English, in Hebrew, and in Greek. So he did not miss any of the nuances that the Bible had to offer. And today I hear people tell me that it's so time-consuming. How do I deal with my children? I'll be late for work. And then yet I see of a man like John Wesley who reads it for four or five hours every morning because his hunger was there. I hear evangelists today telling us that we need a great awakening in the United States, that we need to be out and we can need to pray to God that we can reach this country and turn it back to its ways. But then if you ask the average Christian how much he reads the scriptures, I say, I know why there is no great awakening. I see devotionals today. People will tell me, I read my devotional today. How long was it? Well, about 10 or 15 minutes. What was it about? Well, I forgot. Hmm, okay. We have people who nibble at the Bible. We have bits and pieces. Or the new fad today is to read books about the Bible. We call them commentaries. Um, but it's always someone's opinion about the Scripture, the history of the Bible. And I wonder what our commitment is. Okay, the Bible. Read the Bible, the Old Testament. We have to remember that today we do not teach much from the pulpit of the Old Testament. And the reason is I'll share with you in a, a moment. But the thing is, is that when Paul told Timothy that all Scripture is inspired by God and good for admonishment, exhortation, and rebuke, we have to know at that time the New Testament had not been written. So what was Paul referring to? The Old Testament. The Old Testament can be read in a year. If you take 20 minutes a day. Take 20 minutes a day and in a year you'll read all 39 books. The Old Testament is an easy book because it's written in Hebrew. In Hebrew we translate it into English as a very simple language. You also have to remember that Hebrews were an action-based people. There was no philosophy in it. If it said it, you did it. You don't have to reason, rationalize it. Uh, Greek tends to be a very philosophical, a very enlightening, manifesting language. But Hebrew is black and white. Goes to the point, tells you what is going on, and goes on. Everything is very simple in the Old Testament, and everything is concrete. Again, I would share with you, as you read the Old Testament, and I would encourage you here tonight to begin. Take 20 minutes a day and just begin reading. Read it as a book. Start in Genesis and go to Malachi. 20 minutes a day. And in a year's time, you will have read the whole Old Testament. If you have a question as you read the Old Testament, just write over in the margin. I don't understand what this means. I don't understand what is trying to be explained to me. And in a year's time, you'll have already read it. As you read and reread the Old Testament, if you read it once this year, 
This time next year, you'll be starting over again. There will be a lot of things that you wrote in the margin of the Old Testament that you'll realize are clear now. But you'll understand that there are things spoken of in Genesis that Ezekiel expounds on. And that's why I encourage you to read the Old Testament. The Old Testament is a book of prophecy. The Old Testament is a book of glory. The Old Testament is a book of exaltation. If one of the one things you do ever receive out of the Old Testament, you'll understand how the Jews totally upheld the glory of God with reverent fear. And I think that is missing today in the evangelistic church. But I believe that the bulk of our studies should be in the New Testament. The New Testament was written in Greek, uh, a little bit in Aramaic, but for the most part it's Greek. Greek tends to be a complicated, a little trying language. But the reason I say that the church should base itself on the New Testament is out of Colossians 1, verses 24 through 26. Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh with what is still lacking in regard to Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, which is the church. That is us. We are the church. Verse 25, I have become its servant by commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. Paul was commissioned by God to reveal to us the New Testament. If you look at the authors of the New Testament, you'll see Paul wrote most of the books. And the reason is, is that the Old Testament, tremendous reverence for our Lord, tremendous prophecies on how God was going to save humanity. But they had no intimate relationship with God. They worshiped God. They sacrificed to God. The Jews believed that God occasionally hung out in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, whether it be in Shiloh or in Jerusalem. God would at times intervene and actually speak to people. God would send angels down to speak and intervene in supernatural ways. But today, God is here. God is among us. This is one of the great mysteries of the New Testament. The Jews went somewhere to worship God. The the part of the mystery that Paul is speaking of here is the fact that God indwells his children. I shared with you last week, we need to be in this word. If you have any questions about this word, instead of going to a commentary or Greek writings or an authority on the scripture, the author indwells you. Go to the author. He says, pray without ceasing. The mystery of the New Testament And it's being revealed to us in the New Testament, the books that make up the New Testament, through the Holy Spirit that indwells us, is all that a Christian needs. The major focus of Paul's ministry was on new revelation. Basically saying that God has come in the form of man, paid the penalty as the sacrificial perfect lamb, and has paid the price for sin. All sin. And that Christ himself has ascended to the right hand of God, but he has sent us a comforter. His spirit, and Thessalonians tells us, God will send us the spirit of his son, 
We call it the Holy Spirit. And it will indwell his children. It will comfort them. It will enlighten them. And it will guide them. But his children have to have instructions. That's why we have the New Testament. Paul, being a Pharisee, Hebrew of Hebrews, used the Old Testament to illustrate the truths of this mystery. In the book of Romans, Paul quotes the Old Testament more than any author of any single book in the New Testament. The message of the New Testament is all that, all that is in the Old Testament and also includes the new revelation that sin has been paid for and man may be saved by grace through faith. The New Testament summarizes the Old Testament and it leads to further revelation. I've heard people tell me in the book of Revelation, it is so difficult, it's so hard to understand. Why would you study that book? Why would you search that book out? And in the second chapter, it says, Blessed are he who reads this book and hears its truths. I would read the book of Revelation because the book of Revelation guarantees me that I will be blessed. I also read the book of Revelation and know in a, in a total summary that we win. It takes more time in the New Testament. The writings of Greek are harder. They're more complex. But I will share with you the way it was taught to me and hopefully, we can all apply this. It was taught to me to study scripture is to begin with a very small book. The gentleman that shared this with me said start with 1 John. At that time, we were on uh, an expository trip with Pastor Al through 1 John. So me and my infinite wisdom says I'll start with 1 Peter. And if you happen to notice, that is the book that I am teaching out of now. In the course of 30 days, there are five chapters in 1 Peter. In the course of 30 days, I read 1 Peter twice a day, morning and night. I did not get into an exposition of each word. I did not try to trace the thoughts. I did not try to break it down as if I was going to preach a sermon from it. I read it as a letter. At the end of 30 days, I had read 1 Peter 60 times. I am now in the process of reading Matthew. I moved to a larger book. There's 28 chapters in the book of Matthew. I'm reading seven chapters twice a day. I'll have Matthew done in four months. But in the course of four months, I will have read Matthew 60 times. Now then, what does that benefit? One of the greatest enlightening things that I have found in my study of Scripture, or you will find if you proceed in Scripture, is that each letter deals with a topic, whether it is the four Gospels or whether it is an epistle. They each deal with a topic. Then you will find in that topic that each chapter deals with a portion of that topic. But you do not know what those topics are unless you read it. And they don't really become clear to you until about the 15th day. Now, there's easier ways. You can get a study Bible and read in the beginning of the chapter or what the book was written about. But that's a man's opinion. That's what the man who read it 30 times says it was about. Again, I share with you, you have the author in your heart. 
and you have the written word in front of you, read it. Some people believe the Bible is a bunch of verses. Part of that is, I believe, a fault of the pastorate over the last 90 years. In 1907, the World Council of Churches believed that it was time to get away from expository teaching and go to topical teaching to meet the needs of the people who were hurting and suffering. I believe that at this day and age, in 1994, that what I see is the benefits of topical preaching. Those who are truly children of God are infants. The Baptist church is extremely difficult at this. The Baptist church, you can have a minister there, he can be there for 22 years, and in 22 years you're going to hear nothing but salvation, salvation, salvation. Why would me being saved need to know more about salvation? The job of the pulpit is to edify the saints, to teach them and to educate them in the word, not salvation. You're the missionaries. I'm just a teacher. After the 30 days of reading a small book, again, so you don't become frustrated, you could get a book like mine. This is a... NIV, it's small print. First Peter is two pages long. Okay? I got first, second, no, I got second, third, John, and Jude on one page. So I can read the whole book just like that. And I feel like I've accomplished something. I have another study Bible that I study out of that is larger print, and I, I study harder in that. But as I read the scriptures and I want to know and read the book, I get one so I feel like I go through it quickly. I'm not that fast of a reader, but when you can get First Peter on two pages, you feel, oh, I'm done. So if you're needing a way out, that's a way to get out of it. Again, start with a small book. As you read the book, about the 15th day, I did it at a time, I don't anymore, but at a time there's a little three by, three by five cards. As you read a chapter, write down what you think the chapter is about. It's amazing, after reading 1 Peter, as I study Scripture now, and people will ask me a question, say, on holiness. Okay, They ask me on a Christian's goal for holiness. I don't know what chapter or verse that is, but I know it's on the left-hand side, the right column about halfway down. So when I go back to the Scripture, I turn to 1 Peter, and I know that second page, that right column... It's going to be right in there. But it's repetition. How many of you know your, know your social security number? How many of you know your phone number? Did you just get that number and memorize it? Or did you, by repetition, learn that number? After you go through a small book for 30 days, go to a large book. I shared with you I was doing Matthew. I pray that someday uh, I will be able to teach the gospel of Matthew. I don't know if it's coming, and I don't know if it isn't. But again, in four months, I will have read uh, Matthew 60 times because I read it in the morning and in the evening. Okay, don't miss a day. I tried that once. Well, I'm not going to read today, so I'll read four times tomorrow. Well, if you can't do it two times this day, you ain't going to do it four times the next day. Now then, as you move back and forth... From a big book to a little book to a big book to a little book, you will say, gee, many crickets, guy, the rapture's coming. How do you expect me to read all this reading and go out and do a job and all the rest of it? Let me tell you something. 
In two and a half years, you will have read every book in the New Testament 30 times. Now, John Wesley read four hours a day. John MacArthur reads the Old Testament twice a year and the New Testament four times a year. And I can compare my walk with their walk and what God has done in their lives and what God is doing in my life, and that convinces me. Because John Wesley and John MacArthur are no different than me and you, except they have a hunger for the Word. They are striving to be the servant God has called them to be. That's the only difference. And if they can get down and read that much, then we should. I shared with the elders before I started that I wanted 20 hours a week completely devoted to nothing but God's Word. And I'm not talking about above me reading Matthew or whatever else I'm reading. I'm talking about as I prepare a message, I want 20 hours, a solid, uninterrupted time for that message. And they said, that's fine. So I talked to one of the guys that's on staff at the Grace Community Church, and they said that John MacArthur uses 40 hours. And I said, does this guy like sleep? Because all I can figure is he's reading the Old Testament twice a year, the New Testament four times a year, and he's preaching four messages a week. Yes, that's four messages. He has two morning services and an evening service and Wednesday. But I also see how God has used him. When you do this, it's not like you're reading a novel. It's not like taking War and Peace and reading the first five chapters in a month, the second five chapters in a month. You are reading God's divine word. You are reading that that is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, can discern the thoughts and intents of the heart. That's what you're reading. Now, if you don't think the Bible isn't important, then why would God give it to us? He gave it to us for a reason, to read. I mean, we've got the, the computer, the, the Bible is on computer. The Bible is in about any kind of language you can think of. They've got it now on a little microfilm thing that fits on the head of a, all 66 books or on the head of a pen, uh, computer programs to discern the Bible. But if you're not going to read it, it is absolutely useless. Okay, you read it. The method I described to you, the merit is that look at the men that shared these methods with me, what ha God, how God used them, and it was basically their diligence to his word. Isaiah tells me that the Bible is precept upon precept, line upon line. When you read the Old Testament for 20 minutes a day, and in a year you have read the whole thing, and you are repetitiously reading the epistles of the New Testament or the Gospels, and you've read all the New Testament in two and a half years, you will have line upon line, precept upon precept. You will learn things that people don't understand. And you don't have to have a teacher teach it. It will be the Holy Spirit and God's Word. For instance, Matthew 5, they approached Jesus about divorce. 
And the man makes a statement, and I'm paraphrasing because I, I'll be honest with you, I have not memorized this passage. The man makes a comment that if you give, if you divorce your wife and give her a letter of divorce, then she will not be in adultery. Jesus says, if any man divorces other than adultery, he himself is an adulteress. Now, that if you had been reading the Old Testament, you would have realized that in Deuteronomy 24, you find those exact words. And you would have said, wow, he just quoted the law. The Jews became angry at it because the Jews had taken the law and made it the way they wanted to. Jesus just quoted Scripture. You will also see that in John 3, it says, when he was speaking to Nicodemus, the Pharisee, and he says, you must be born again. You must be born of water and spirit. What's your first thought? Well, water, that's that bag. It's a woman and, you know, that, you know, we all heard about it. Most of us don't want to think about it, but, you know, you're born in water and the little baby's in this big bag of water inside a woman. That's the English mentality. Okay? I thought that for years. Absolutely thought that for years. You got to be born of a woman and of the spirit. That's not what it means. Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel says, Coming is a day when man will be born of water and spirit. Wait a minute. You mean to tell me that men weren't born of women in this bag of water until after Ezekiel? No. You also have to remember that Jesus said, Hey, I give living water. You know what water is? It's the word. Man will be born of the word and the Holy Spirit it has nothing to do with your what we would perceive as the physical norm. That's just reading it. If you're reading the Old Testament, you're reading the New Testament, you see, hey, look, lights start coming on. And you don't have to be a deep scholar. You don't have to be fluent in Hebrew, a scholar of Greek. You just read it and you say, you know, Ezekiel's talking about the same thing Jesus is talking about. And Nicodemus and all this, and it all comes together. We have in our minds that this, that this Bible is this big puzzle. And God has thrown all these pieces out here, and you've got X number of years until you die to put all these pieces together. God didn't do that. God is very explicit in the Bible. God is very enlightening in the Bible. The problem is, is part of it is that the teachers today teach portions. And if you're teaching topical, you know what you're doing? You're giving the people a bunch of puzzles. You're telling them to put the pieces together. Okay? You teach expositing, then you're teaching the Word of God as it was written. And there's no room for error. Okay, second point interpret the Bible. How do we interpret the Bible? Today I see a lot of people who read the Bible, and I've actually had some dealings in the last few days with some people who are definitely readers of the Bible. Uh, a few of them I wouldn't even be surprised were maybe not editors to the Bible. But what they've done is they take the Bible and they go out and apply it. And they become very frustrated. You've seen them. They come to church very faithful to the fellowship, very faithful to service in the fellowship, but they've always got this really grouchy look on their face. You know why? They've taken the Bible and they've applied it. And they're absolutely miserable because they didn't interpret it. You have to interpret it. <clears throat> For instance, 
The Ethiopian eunuch on the road, Philip gets transported out and ends up out there. And he sees the Ethiopian eunuch and he's reading the Bible. So, paraphrase this a little bit. Philip walks up to him and says, uh, how's it going? You know, you understand what you're reading. And the eunuch looks at, it, looks at him and says, how can I understand unless someone guides me? So Philip guided him, and the eunuch was baptized. Let me read you something here. You were dead in your sins, and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of your sins, and having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against him and that stood opposed to him, he took it all away, nailing it to a cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, I sin in there, forgiveness, must have nailed them to the cross. But we haven't interpreted it. Because if you read it in its total context, you'll understand that it's speaking of the Christian's freedom. And when a Christian doubts his salvation, Paul is reaffirming the people in Colossae that it's all been paid for. Don't worry about doubting your salvation. Be about the business of God. That's interpreting scripture. Turn with me, if you would, to Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8. Do uh, anybody pick up on Nehemiah? I know the story of Nehemiah. He wanted to rebuild uh, Jerusalem. was given authority after, I believe it was a Babylonian captivity. We'll begin Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. All the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. He told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which had, was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water in the presence of men and women and others who could understand. Interesting. He was reading the Bible aloud from sunup till noon. He read the Bible aloud, the law, the written word. He reads it aloud to them, and all those who could understand were there gathering. Uh, go on up to verse 5. Ezra opened the book. Again, he's reading. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their arms and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. He read the Bible, and the people worshipped. But the key is in verse 8. They read from the book of the law, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. That's why God has appointed some to be pastors and teachers so that the people can understand what is being read. Okay, there's parts of it that just don't understand. It's parts of it that I spend a little more time digging to try to find, to present to you, to explain it to you. God gave us the written scriptures. 
Why? Why did he give us the written scriptures? To interpret. 1 Peter 4.13 Until I come, devote yourself to public reading of scripture, to preaching, and teaching. Okay, let me explain something to you really quick. Greek. Word there we translated preaching. King James and New American Standard Bible translated as exhortation. So it would, in the King James, it would say, Until I come, devote yourself to public reading of Scripture, to exhorting, and to teaching. Okay, so I looked up the word. The word is paraklesis in the Greek, and it means to act in the act of exhortation, encouragement, or comfort. So the true translation there, instead of preaching, is actually exhortation. Okay, now why did I bring that up? Because what I see here is that we are to read the text, we are to apply the text, and we are to explain the text. You ever try to tell your kids to do something, not to do something that you're doing? I know a gentleman uh, who's been smoking marijuana for a number of years, a long time. And uh, I spoke to him, and he was really upset that his son was smoking marijuana. And I said, uh, why are you upset? He said, I told him not to. Sounds good. If me as a preacher, as a teacher, stand up here and confront you, exhort you, and guide you, and it's not in my life, who's going to listen? When you see that Paul has commanded Timothy to public reading of Scripture, to preaching or exhorting and teaching, which is basically reading the text, applying the text, and teaching the text. This is what is called rightly dividing the word. Because you can be the best scholar in the world, and if you're an old grouch, and your life doesn't look any different than someone who lives in the world, you've benefited nothing. Let me tell you about misinterpretations. Do you see there my don't miss the errors of interpretation? Misinterpretations. Rightly dividing the word or unrightly dividing the word. Big trouble. Mormon church. They've done a lot of things wrong, but it started with a misinterpretation of the 144,000. Jehovah's Witnesses. Misinterpretation of 1 John 1, or John chapter 1, verse 1. There are teachings out there today that says that the patriarchs practice polygamy. So should we. Teaching out there today that says that God granted divine right to the king of Israel... And all kings have divine rights. Ever wonder who the emperor of Japan was? And he kept making the comment that he does not have any political power. He has divine rights. The king and queen of England, or I guess it's just the queen of England, has no political power, yet she has paid massive amounts of money. You know why? She has divine rights. Here's one that I know you guys will really enjoy. In Genesis, God cursed woman with pain and childbirth. Correct? And it's blasphemous that a woman should ever even consider 
taking painkillers during the birthing of her child because it is a punishment that God has instilled on her. Let me ask you this. When was the last time you offered your lamb? When was the last time that you uh, ceremonially cleaned your pots and pans before you had your kosher food? That is rightly dividing the word. Okay, three errors. One, don't make the point at the price of proper interpretation. Avoid superficial interpretation and don't spiritualize it. Okay, don't make the point at the price of proper interpretation. In my life and my time in the ministry, I have had numerous occasions that preach a message here, a message there, a message here, a message there, never any consistency. And what I've caught myself in is that I would have a thought and it would go through my mind and it would be really, really good. And then I would try to go find scripture to validate that thought. You are asking yourself for trouble when you go at teaching or studying scripture that way. There is a book called the Talmud. It's rabbinical teachings the rabbis are taught from. And in this, there's a teaching there you'll see in your outline, the Tower of Babel. The Talmud says that you teach the lesson that the Tower of Babel was designed and that whole story revealed because God wanted men to love each other. Men had fallen in love with material things and God punished them and scattered them, give them different tongues because they were in material things. The reason that they teach this is that when you had the hod carriers carrying up a load of bricks on the way up, on the way down, if the man fell off the scaffolding and died, no one cared. If the man was carrying a load of bricks up the scaffolding and he fell to his death, they lost that load of bricks and they become angry. And therefore, is the story of the Tower of Babel. That is not the Tower of Babel. It was before idolatry. Man thought he could reach God by building a big tower. And God said, you're worshiping rock. And so therefore, I'll deal with it. Another interesting passage. And if you would turn with me, because you may have heard this preached, even in evangelical church. Second Peter. Yes, I do love that, man. Second Peter, chapter 2, verse 20. Second Peter, chapter 2, verse 20. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it, overcome, they are worse off at the end than they are at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and turned their backs on the sacred command that was passed to them. Now people will tell me, and actually I had a Baptist, uh, Baptist pastor tell me this, that this shows unequivocally that you can lose your salvation. That this passage of scripture here if they escape the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior and again are entangled in it and overcome, 
Meaning that once you were saved, you were entangled into it again and overcome, and you can lose your salvation. But interpretation is lost. If you look right there, the second word of that verse, if they, and if you will turn, as I have to, back to chapter 2, the beginning, you will see that they were also false prophets. The thought has never changed in that portion of Scripture. What he is saying is, is that they had heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, knew the baptism of the Holy Spirit, knew what baptism was, knew what all the ordinances were, knew the teachings of the apostles, and yet rejected it and are false prophets. Same passage is mentioned by Paul in 2 Corinthians 2.17, unlike so many, we do not corrupt the word of God for profit. Some translations will say peddle, peddle or corrupt. The word is something for a deceit or falsifying. False teachers. So interpretation, the Tower of Babel, the loss of salvation, it is all in the interpretation. But the other thing is, avoid superficial interpretation. Don't just skim it. Don't just read across and say, well, wasn't that good? You've got to study it. You've got, that's why I highly encourage you to read in the scriptures the way I give you tonight. Read the scriptures in a repetitious manner, and in two and a half years you will have read the New Testament 30 times every book, and you'll have two and a half years of reading the Old Testament. That is not that long. Today we see a lot of people who will take a verse in a Bible study or a Sunday school class. They take the verse and you hear nothing but opinions. I think it means this. Well, it seems like this. Well, it's kind of like this. I feel this way about it. That is not interpreting Scripture. That is not interpreting Scripture. That is giving your opinion about a passage of Scripture. And we all have opinions, but we need to know what the Scripture says. Don't be superficial. 1 Timothy 5.17, double honors do the elders who work hard at the Word of God. Okay? And that's, again, that word, agonize. Agonizing over the Word of God. Study the Word. If you take and read it in the manner that I have shared with you, you will find the Old Testament verifying the New Testament and vice versa. You will find in there speaking of adultery when you can divorce that, is he, or that uh, Deuteronomy already had a law on it. The Pharisees had just forgot that part. All right? The other one is don't spiritualize it. We do this a lot today. And I will give you some examples. The charismatic church. I heard a charismatic pastor... Speaking on Nehemiah, if you know the story of Nehemiah, he was going to build up the walls around Jerusalem. And the man preached on a message that the broken walls were that of broken humanity and that the king's pools, which were going to be cleansed, were the baptism and that the mortar between the blocks was the gift of tongues, which would bring it back. And the basic 
message was that the Holy Spirit by baptism and through tongues was going to heal the brokenness of man. Okay, now if you've ever read Nehemiah, you'll know that in there the spiritual highlight is, is that he's rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. The spiritual aspect of that is that he is building a wall around Jerusalem. That's it. There's nothing... The Hebrew language, when he says he's building a wall, he's building a wall. In the Hebrew language, if he's walking down the road in the dirt, he's walking down the road in the dirt. There is nothing spiritual about it. But yet today we take passages of Scripture and we spiritualize them. And the charismatic church, the Pentecostal church, and I don't care if I'm offensive, is taking the Old Testament and spiritualizing. They're telling me today that the manna that fell out of the sky was the Word. You're telling me that God was pouring out the Bible from the sky. No, the Bible was in the tent. The manna was food from heaven, just like it says. It was food from heaven. There was stuff falling out of the sky you could eat. That was what manna was. But they spiritualize it. Paul, in a tempest, in the Mediterranean Sea, preparing to be shipwrecked, throwing stuff off the boat. They throw four anchors out the back of the boat, right? It's try to slow them down. Okay, four anchors. The message that I heard preached was that those four anchors are the four anchors of the Christian, which is faith, hope, peace, and joy. When I study that, it sounds like four pieces of steel with a rope tied on. There's nothing spiritual about it. Absolutely nothing spiritual about it. So don't spiritualize Scripture. I heard a man that, that speak a message on the angel rolled the stone from the tomb where Jesus was. Okay? And the message was how we can roll the storm, stones out of our life. Wait a minute. When the angel rolled, the, rolled that stone from in front of the tomb, the spiritual aspect was is that he rolled that stone from in front of the tomb. He opened the door. That's it. It has nothing to do with moving the boulders out of my life. John MacArthur calls this little Bo Peep preaching. I thought that's pretty good. You know why? Because basically what it is, close up the Bible and say, Little Bo Peep has lost her sheep, and the world is full of lost souls. But don't worry, God will bring them home with their tails waggling behind them. That's Little Bo Peep preaching. I spiritualized a nursery rhyme. And that's what they're doing with the Old Testament. They're making fairy tales out of the Old Testament. When it says that Joshua asked for the day to be longer so he could finish destroying an army, the spiritual aspect of that is that he asked for the day to be longer so he could finish destroying the army. There's nothing supernatural about it other than the fact that the world did quit turning and he got a little more daylight and he did complete the, the act. They say that the camel through the eye of a needle is based on the fact that the wall of Jerusalem had a small gate that only camels could go through, and it was called the needle gate. And this is the reference that was being brought up that our Lord shared with us. 
Now, what the Lord was saying is that the rich people who were supposed to sacrifice more because they had more money, they could tithe more because they had more money, were closer to God. That's what the Pharisees would teach. All right? The more money you got, the closer you're going to get to heaven because you're going to give more. All right? Jesus says a rich man has got a chance of a camel going through an eye of a needle. And you know what the disciples said? Then who can be saved? That has nothing to do with no gate in a wall where the camels walk through. They were based, the disciples knew that the rich people had a better shot at heaven because of the simple reason they had more money. And Jesus said, no. Only those who believe in the Son of Man. It has nothing to do with molecular reconstruction. I heard that preached. If you line up all the molecules of a camel, wait a minute. There is no gate. The archaeologists, let me tell you something. In Jerusalem, where the wall of the temple is, there has been more archaeological digs per square inch than there has been anywhere in the world. And they ain't found no gate that was for camels. They have no record of a gate named Needle. Now, those seem a little ridiculous, but what is sad is, is that I hear that. And that's spiritualizing Scripture. And it will not work. Don't spiritualize it. There's enough spiritual truths in here without you having to go figure out whether the four boat anchors have got anything to do with the Spirit. Okay. Sources of interpretation. We have boundaries. There's four gaps. I've got them listed there. The language, the culture, geography, and history. Quickly. All right. To spiritualize or to look at these gaps, you have to understand that the Old Testament's written in Hebrew, the New Testament in Greek, and a little Aramaic is involved in it, but for the most part it is Greek and uh, Hebrew. Okay? Perfection listed in the book of Hebrews, we write as perfection, something spiritually growing. When in truth, in the language that is given, which is Greek, it is salvation. When you look through the book of Hebrews, every time you see the word perfection, you keep thinking it's got to do with spiritual maturity. When in fact, it's always speaking of salvation. Okay, this isn't what I am sharing with you, the difference in language and the culture. All right, again, uh, King James sometimes calls love charity. Uh, NIV calls it love all the time. If you look at the Greek, you find that there's eros, there's phileo, there's agapo, uh, and there's another one, and I don't remember it. Two books I would recommend. Strongest Concordance. Okay, Strongest Concordance. It's got all of the... Greek in there help you find it, but you have to have a King James Bible to make it work. There's another book. Uh, Vine does a good job. I don't own that one. Uh, I have a Spiro Zodiades word study of the New Testament with a name like Spiro Zodiades. Guy's got to be good at Greek, right? So, um, and it works really well for me. You don't have to take Greek. And I, I think I was sharing that with you just a little while ago. You don't have to be a student of Greek. But occasionally it comes in very handy to have Scripture, especially like when you're dealing with a word that says perfection, and everybody thinks it's dealing with spiritual maturity, when in fact it's dealing with um, salvation. The other thing, culture gap. The Hebrew people of this day, of the writing of this New Testament, were different than we were. Right? It's a spiritual thing. Okay, they were God's chosen people. They were expecting Messiah, and we were out um, doing whatever Gentiles did at that time. All right, instance, in John, it says, Jesus was born, in the beginning, 
was the Word, and the Word was God. Okay? You know, I have to say, why don't you just say in the beginning, Jesus was there? And that way we don't tolerate it. All right, the Word, the Word, Word, okay, in the Greek mentality, the Greek philosophers of the time, the Word is a spatial energy, okay? Everything comes from the Word, okay? Now, the reason is, remember in Revelations, I am the Alpha and the Omega, okay? What is that? You're the first letter and the last letter, right? No. It's more intense than that. You think about it now. You have the first letter of the alphabet and the last letter of the alphabet and all the letters in between. What he's saying is all knowledge is in the alphabet. Our alphabet has 26 letters, right? All human's knowledge is in those 26 letters in some arrangement. Okay? So in the Greek mind, when you see the word or alpha and omega, which connotates the word, you're talking all knowing. Okay? All wisdom. All right, so in the Greek mentality, when John Wright pins down, in the beginning was the Word, he is saying, and it was God, and it came and walked among us. That means all knowledge came and walked among us. But see, John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was massive, because the Hebrew, anytime you see the Word, it was a manifestation of God. Okay, so you got a hold of that? Anytime in the Hebrew's mind you've seen the Word, it was God, manifestation of God. All right? So when John pins down the same phrase to the Greeks, he says, In the beginning was the Word. The Jews say, Amen. And he came and he walked among us. Okay? So that's the culture gap. All right? So you've got to know a little bit about the culture. That's why when you hear... Myself or Al had in the back in the past go into a definition of the word. Uh, this is usually the reason because there's a cultural deviance from what we would translate it. Okay. <clears throat> if you don't know what a Jesusizer is, all right, that's part of the culture. Then the Book of Galatians is a little bit confusing. Okay. Until you find out what a Jesusizer was. If you read the book of Colossians, remember when we went through that? Al kept referring to Gnostics. What in the world is a Gnostic? Okay, but we studied that. All-knowing. Someone who was living under knowledge. But when you knew what a Gnostic was, then the book of Colossians came out pretty good. When uh, you knew the Jewish traditions, it makes the book of Matthew really good. And you start getting into the parables, you say, boy, this is about the stupidest story anybody could tell, even if you are God. But when you realize the Jewish heritage, the parables are very, very enlightening. But you have to know the Jewish heritage. Okay? I also need to know geography. Geography. <clears throat> when he says they went down to Jericho, they went down to Jericho. They had to go down to Jericho. Okay? When he says he went up to Jerusalem, there ain't nothing higher in Israel than Jerusalem. Jerusalem is on a plateau, so he went up to Jerusalem. Okay, that's just some of the things. Thessalonians. All right, Paul writes to Thessalonians and he's encouraged that they had taken the word and had gone out to Macedonia and Acadia. Oh, wait a minute. If you look at a little map that's in the back of your Bible, Macedonia and Acadia, that's an awful lot. And Paul was only in Thessalonia with the Thessalonians for two weeks. How did it all go get all over the place? 
Well, if you study your geography, you'll realize that the main thoroughfare east and west for all commerce went through Thessalonica. So anybody that come through, you share the gospel, he takes it on. All roads lead to Rome. Why do you think Paul wanted to start his ministry base in Rome? Because it was the center of the world, in essence. And if you proclaim the truth there, you were sending it to Spain, to Libya, to North Africa, to Europe, to the British Isles and places you didn't know. You were actually sending it to China, India. That's why Paul says, I'm going to go to Rome. If I set up a place in Rome, hey, I can reach the world. I don't even need a telephone. Okay? Lazarus from the grave. Jesus raised Lazarus from the grave and it says immediately the people in Jerusalem knew it. Wait a minute. Lazarus was buried in Bethany. And it says immediately the word went to Jerusalem. How did, and Jerusalem all knew and were aggravated about it. How do they know that? Geography. Bethany's a mile and a half from the temple grounds. That's how they knew. I mean, a mile and a half ain't that, ain't that far. And if you raise somebody from the dead, I guarantee you're going to have somebody run to Jerusalem. Okay? But see, these are just some things that you need to know. History. Another point. History. Well, there's, a, there's another one. If, if you remember, if it talks about Jesus walk, walking across the... I forgot the valley. Cassine Valley. Him and his disciples went across the Cassine Valley out of Jerusalem. They were leaving. Okay? It was time of Passover. Okay? You have to remember at Passover, at that Passover week... All right, he was coming into Jerusalem. He had to cross this valley. There was a stream that ran through there, and I don't remember the name of it. All right, that stream was fed out of Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. All right, at Passover, there was estimations that if a quarter of a million sheep were slaughtered for offerings. I mean, that's a lot of sheep. I don't anybody has estimation. All right, what happened out of the back of this, uh, the temple was the drainage pipe, lack of better terms, for the blood. All right, And that blood filled that stream, and the Lord had to walk across that stream that had to be running blood red. I mean, if you got a quarter million sheep being killed, that stream's running red. Okay? And he had, as before he entered into his triumphal infant on the colt, he had to step across that blood-soaked ground, knowing that they were offering to appease God, knowing that he was going to be the lamb. Okay, and if I get a chance to preach Matthew, you'll learn more about that. But it's just some of the things I've been finding. Last thing, history. You've got to know a little history that'll help you with your interpretations. Pilate. You know Pilate was scared to death of the Jews? You see him vacillate back and forth. You know why he was scared to death of the Jews? Roman history says that he marched into town when he came in to take over as the head honcho for Jerusalem, of Judea. He marched in with all these banners, had the big seal of, of uh, Caesar on there. Well, Caesar considered himself a god, emperor worship. All right? The Jews seen this, and all they seen was idols, 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 idols. So Pilate walks into town with his big banners, and he's already made every one of them mad. Okay? Remember, if you've ever been in the military, one of the last places you wanted to go was Alaska or the Poles. You know, they send you there because that was like the armpits of the world. Okay? Uh, and the, during World War II, the Germans used to hate to go to the Eastern Front because that's where the Russians were and it was cold and really nasty, okay? All right? Judea was such a place. 
If you got sent from by Rome as a governor or a soldier, you have evidently made somebody mad. Because Judea was the last place you want to go. You had all these really goofy religious fanatics. You had zealots that was out there killing their own leaders because they were listening to the Romans. You had their, their priests were everywhere and they were doing this and doing that. It was just a serious pain in the butt. Okay? Pilate had to go there. Okay? Pilate did something to try to embarrass the Jews. Okay? The Barabbas incident. All right? Before he was released. Barabbas was an instigator, a zealot, okay, and he had murdered. And basically his penalty was death. They, he offended them because he did not execute him, all right? They didn't want him executed. He wanted him executed because he was a leader. I mean, he was a zealot. They didn't like him, but he had a good following, okay? has nothing to do with the movie, all right? There was a movie out, Barabbas, I think, something like that, Okay. Pilate had been governor there and had nothing but problems. His job was on the line. I mean, if he had already offended somebody and they'd sent him to Jerusalem, what in the world are they going to send him the next time? Okay? So when he says, I wash my hands of it, he's basically trying to save his own butt. I mean, that was it. Because his job was on the line. And the Jews, he couldn't please them. I mean, he walks into town with the banners and they wanted to kill him. He made a deal with Barabbas, and that offended all of them. And then this Jesus guy, you deal with him. Okay? So this is how history plays into it. If you know a little bit of Roman history, this man Pilate had a lot of problems in the city of Rome, and so they sent him out to Judea to be uh, out of their hair. So that's how history will apply to it. So what we've seen tonight is that If you're going to study the Bible, first thing you need to do is read it. I highly recommend that you read it the way I suggested. And at the seven-day mark, you will stress with it. And at the 15-day mark, you'll stress with it. But persevere. Because I remember last week I said, those who can study Scripture will be diligent. Okay? The other thing is, is read your Old Testament. Know some of these things. A lot of history is validated uh, in the Old Testament. All right, so in two and a half years, we'll all have read this uh, 30 times, okay? And then two and a half times of the Old Testament. The other thing is interpret the Bible. Don't just take the Bible and say, okay, I'm supposed to do this and this and this and this, and I'm going to go do it. Interpret it. Know what the Bible's saying, all right? When you know what the Bible is saying, you will not ever be led astray. Because it's like I shared with you in Second Peter, they're trying to tell me that I can lose my salvation, but I know that all Second Peter is dealing with false teachers and false prophets. So if you're going to tell me that I ain't no false prophet, I ain't no false teacher, so that means you are because you're afraid you're going to lose your salvation. Okay? I can give a defense. All right? The other thing is source of it, uh, the language. Uh, again, uh, Strong's Concordance or uh, Vines has what they call a New Testament dictionary. I have a New Testament dictionary written by Spiro Zodiades, uh, and I enjoy it a lot. Uh, he's Greek. He's got a little insight that's kind of helpful. Um, the culture, you can study uh, Old uh, Testament writings and understand what the Jews were like. If you've got a good handle on the Old Testament, then you understand what the culture is like. The geography, you can get that from any Encyclopedia Britannica. 
And you can also read your little maps in the back of your Bibles. But I always found that that is a little confusing. So what I did is ripped them out of my Bible and I laid them out so I can look at them easier. Okay? It doesn't hurt to write in these and, and you can rip pages out of them and God doesn't strike you dead. He hasn't done that to me yet. And I'm on marking up my second Bible now. Okay? So anyway, uh, history, world history, any world history. So with that in mind, I will close in prayer and we will continue. I will finish it up with principles of interpretation next week and uh, then it will be done. And I count on having a whole room full of Bible scholars in two and a half years. Okay. Let's pray. Gracious, loving Father. Father, I just praise you for this opportunity. I praise you for your written word. Father, I praise you for the hunger you've instilled in me. Uh, Father, I pray that I never lose that hunger. I never take it for granted. Father, I pray that by you using me, that other people will see uh, the zeal and the hunger for your truth, Father, and uh, what they see in me, they'll do. Father, I know I'm not perfect, and Father, but you know my heart. Father, I pray that the hearts of those here tonight will be that um, of the bond servant, a humble servant to the King of kings and Lord of lords. Father, I pray that you will instill in them a hunger for your truth. And Father, I pray that you'll instill in them a desire, that inquisible thirst for the living water. Father, I pray that we continue to walk in your wisdom and in your guidance. Father, I pray that we'll rest totally upon uh, your Holy Spirit and your truth. And Father, we'll be faithful uh, to each other to minister to as you have need of us. And that, Father, that we will be the light and the salt you've called us to be. Father, strengthen us. Let us be the true worshipers that you have called us to be. Let us be the true servants that you have called us to be. Father, I know all things are possible by you. Father, I pray with my being that you'll bring us laborers and that, Father, we can set the examples and be the Pauls and the Peters and the Barnabas and the Silas that this world so desperately needs. Father, until we see your son face to face, may we be found worthy. May we run the good race and fight the good fight. In your son's precious name, amen.